Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Greg Bertelson. Greg, how are you doing? Hey, Josh. I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Glad to have you. Actually, since we're here, since I know we're going to be talking about uh, environmental things, uh, today and yesterday and the day before, we've had these forest fires in New York City, and I think it was the most polluted city in the world over the past couple of days. And everyone knows where the global the – the wildfires are bigger than ever because of the – uh, global warming, global warming, we know the cause of it, and no one's talking about maybe not causing it so much. Well, not no one's talking about it, because we are, but it is a spooky feeling to go out and be able to look directly in the direction of the sun, and it's just smoke in between. Indeed, yeah. Well, I'm I'm based in Washington, D.C., as you know, Josh, and we're not having quite the level of smoke that you guys are, but it's noticeable here. In fact, I had, had a meeting yesterday in which the, the, the view was of the U.S. Capitol, which was probably only about 100 yards away, and, uh, and seeing it through the, the, the pollution and the, the smoke, it was a stark reminder that we've got a lot more progress to make uh, finding a solution to this problem. Yeah, and not just finding, but implementing as as I feel like that's what we're going to get to with you. Um, and hopefully listeners have listened to my episode with Bob Litterman and Bob put us in touch and actually I haven't yet recorded with uh, Gernot Wagner, but he's going to be coming. I, I think you know him too, right? He was my original yeah. connection. And uh, so I'll be recording with him, I think next week. So Bob talks a lot about a carbon tax uh, and dividend and various um, measures related to it. Uh, like border adjustments. And then he said, and he comes at it from a business perspective, really risk management perspective. And he talked about getting things passed. And he said, you should really talk to Greg because Greg is really in the thick of things of getting things passed. And when I looked at, uh, so I'm equally interested in you and your organization, because I think a lot of people wouldn't expect it to have started the way that it did. And I think they'd be glad to hear it. And I wonder if you could tell us about would it be better to start with your background or CLCs? We can start with mine and then go to the CLCs or other, whichever way you prefer. Let's start with you because I bet you've known yourself longer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting to know myself, Josh. So my path started in law school, was a environmental policy-focused student when I was uh, – when I was in law school, came out not exactly where I wanted to apply that interest and, uh, and started my career in consulting. So I worked with large utilities, energy intensive manufacturers like steel producers and aluminum manufacturers and a host of others. And my real focus in that work was in helping those companies understand what the impacts to their bottom line would be from a host of environmental policies. And when I was in the thick of it in my consulting days, cap and trade was a policy that was getting a lot of interest around the world and getting a lot of attention here in Washington. In fact, as Josh, you, you probably are aware, in 2009, the House of Representatives passed what's often referred to after the sponsors as the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill. And I was working very closely with a number of companies to assess how that bill, how that cap-and-trade program would impact their business. And in doing that work, I became convinced, uh, absolutely convinced as I am today, that for climate change, and for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, there is no better way than a market-based solution. Or said differently, there is no better way to lower emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, than to put a price or a fee or a tax on carbon emissions and then let the market figure out where the reductions are going to come from. If we make more carbon intensive activities more expensive by comparison and through competitive behaviors, less carbon intensive or zero carbon intensive 
activities like renewable energy or electric vehicles or the rig that you've got in your home will become more cost competitive. And that belief, which I developed fairly quickly in doing my work for companies, uh, ultimately led me to wanting to get a little bit closer to the political action. And so I took a job working for an organization called the National Association of Manufacturers, which just so happened to represent a number of the companies that I was working for in my consulting days. And I was a lobbyist for, uh, for industry, in essence. And we did a lot of interesting work in that association. I have a lot of fond memories. But ultimately, my passion was towards working and advancing uh, policies that led to a market-based solution. And that's what led me to the Climate Leadership Council, which is an organization that was founded by, interestingly enough, a group of prominent Republican elder statesmen with the singular focus to leverage market forces to decarbonize the globe, to put a price on carbon in order to allow the free marketplace to find real solutions that ultimately lower emissions and address climate change. You said a lot there, and, and there's a few things that stood out to me. One is that when you said there's no better way, that tells me that there was you sat down and you didn't just like, oh, I feel like this one. You you weren't shooting darts. It sounds like you compared a lot. Did you? Do I read you right? And if so, what were the other things you looked at? And I presume you're also not saying either or, right? You're not saying only this one. I think some people react that way. Every time I tell about an idea, people are like, well, what about this? I'm like, yeah, that too, but... So n no question about it. There is no one silver bullet in terms of a policy that's going to get the United States, that's going to get the globe uh, to where we need to get in terms of lowering emissions sufficiently to uh, address climate change. But it just so happens that, in my opinion, and this is backed by a lot of research and supported by a number of experts in the field, including most econo uh, economists who have studied, uh, a price, a carbon price, a market-based solution uh, is the most effective of the suite of policies that ultimately we will need. And part of the reason for that, and part of the reason a market-based approach, a price on this particular pollutant is so impactful, is because carbon is so ubiquitous uh, in our in our economy, and Josh, I should say, often I refer to carbon uh, uh, as a representation of all greenhouse gases. And to confuse things further, sometimes we'll talk about a carbon price. So I'll do my best to uh, be clear when I'm talking about just carbon dioxide and when I'm using carbon as a as a placeholder for all greenhouse gas emissions. But in any event, um, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon being the the most prominent are so ubiquitous in our economy that if we don't find a way to create incentives across the economy, and frankly, for all of our economic activity, we are almost certainly going to create a scenario in which we're squeezing the air out of the balloon on one end only to have it inflate on the other. Meaning, if we simply regulate one sector or one state or even one country, an unintended consequence will be emissions will fall in that sector or in that state or in that country. But at least some of those emissions will then be displaced and just simply take place elsewhere. So if we are to close a steel plant here in the United States, Yes, the United States' emissions will fall, but the demand for steel, the global demand for steel, isn't going away. And there's plenty of other steel manufacturing capacity elsewhere in the world. And so that steel will just take place somewhere else. And so, too, will those greenhouse gas emissions. You're, I call it whack-a-mole, and I feel like there's a lot of whack-a-mole going on. Like yeah, we look great here, but all we, but we're just buying it from there. It, it's um, 
Yeah, actually, it, it feels like very poor accounting. It feels like people like in accounting that would be called creative accounting, and that to the uninitiated that sounds nice, but that usually means something uh, illegal. Maybe is going on. Maybe here is not a matter of legality, like it would be in accounting. But it feels like people know what they're doing when they do that, but they just want, want to clean their hands. Well, I tend to think of it as just a natural uh, result of a, of a market-based global economy, which is production is always going to, uh, to go to where it can take place uh, the cheapest, where it can happen with the least costs. And so if one part of the globe or one country has uh, really high environmental regulations, and, and we've seen this, we've seen this. If one country has very high uh, environmental regulations and another has very low uh, costs in the form of environmental regulations, there is going to be a market pull for production to take place in that lower regulated country. And for climate change, that's a real problem because a ton of carbon dioxide that's emitted in the United States has the exact same climate change impact as a ton of carbon dioxide emitted anywhere else in the world. And the real unfortunate part of this um, dynamic is that it actually could be worse if we're sending production in a country with relatively high environmental standards like the United States uh, to a country with relatively low environmental standards, we may be reducing that ton here in the United States, but it could result in two tons of carbon dioxide, for example, taking place in the lower regulated country. And so that's why I keep coming back to market-driven solutions in which we are putting, we're putting a price on, on carbon dioxide, on all carbon. So that displacement that I just described could still take place, but to make that decision, for the market to make that decision to move production to the higher emitting place, well, it's going to cost more because now we've got a tax on carbon. And so now we've got a disincentive for production to move to the higher emitting country. And we have an incentive for everybody everywhere to start competing with each other to lower their carbon emissions because now it's a real cost of operation. And that's, uh, that's why I'm so convinced uh, that we need to be deploying these market forces as a key tool, among others, to addressing global climate change. What would you say to someone who said, well, let's not, I mean, that's a big thing to start with. Let's start, what if we started one industry, did that one industry there, did another industry there, and one by one, you know, maybe it's easier to start in one place and then get to the others rather than doing it all at once. Well, if you start, the, the, the problem starting going industry by industry is industries compete with each other. They don't just, I'm sorry, there's, there's competition across industries, not, uh, not just within industries. So there's a intra-industry competition, not just inter, or I may have gotten that backward, but you understand my, you understand yeah. my <laughs> steel can replace aluminum, aluminum can replace steel, plastic can replace either. Um, as you're thinking about how big manufacturing plants generate energy, they have sometimes the option of purchasing electricity from power plants versus the option of generating their own energy on site. And so if you don't have something that cuts across all industry, you have all industries, you, you risk having that same uh, country leakage dynamic that I explained uh, or described taking place within industries. You would simply have aluminum manufacturing replace steel manufacturing and then the emissions would just shift from the steel manufacturing sector to the aluminum sector now from a country by country uh basis we probably do need to start 
in one part in one, with one country or one part of the world and, and then expand. There's no, uh, there's no authority globally that can simply put a price across all industrial activity in every country in the world, which brings us back to the policy approach that I support most, uh, that Bob Litterman, I'm sure, talked about when he was on your program earlier, which is to put a domestic price on carbon. So essentially, you're putting a carbon fee on fossil fuels when they enter the economy. And this is the, the best way to drive the most substantial reductions here domestically that we know of. And then the second part of the program, in terms of the emission reducing levers, is to apply the same price, the same fee at the border. And by doing that, we expand the market impact of the policy. And we're not simply instructing the market to make decisions here in the United States towards lower carbon activity, but we're creating that incentive for any manufacturer anywhere in the world who is sending products to U.S. consumers. And as we know, uh, the U.S. consumes a lot. You less than most, Josh, but, <laughs> but we consume a lot. And that's a powerful market lever that we can take advantage of to the benefit of lowering global emissions. So now we got into a lot of detail about the policy, and, and I'm also curious about lay more groundwork because the um, when you started, did you, I mean, did you expect that James Baker, George George Schultz would be making a conservative case for carbon dividends and for carbon tax? If so, did others? If not, were you surprised? And what's it like? I mean, what do you think of the conservative case for for this? Is most people I think would be very surprised at it. I'm not, but I think a lot of people would be. So I, I'm not. I'm not either, and probably for for similar reasons. Once you have come to a place in which you understand that climate change is a serious challenge, and that man and our industrial activity is a driving force for it, and you are in a place where you're interested in finding a solution to the, the problem, you go through the list of options. And I sometimes group them in, into three categories. So the first is you can rely heavily on, on, on government subsidies, so um, taxpayer funds, uh, and then government-directed programs to technologies or industries or activities that, uh, that ultimately the government determines um, they want to support. Traditionally, and I think still today, that is not an approach that resonates with, with conservatives. So for the purpose of this question, why have conservatives gravitated towards that? I think we can kind of take that off the table. The second major approach is you can use regulation. So uh, a government agency writing a regulation telling an industry which technologies they have to use, which fuels they can and can't use, often referred to as a command and control approach. Maybe that's a bit dramatic, but the, the point is, is it's the government um, setting rules that industries have to follow in terms of how they operate. Uh, and traditionally, and I think it's safe to say still today, that's just not an approach that resonates with most conservatives. So let's just take that off the table for a second. And then the third option is you can rely on a market-based approach, one that sets up a new framework in which we are simply putting a fee, you could think of it as a user fee, on the thing we want less of, in this case, carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. You allow everybody to play by the same rules because there's one price and everybody has the same opportunity to avoid paying that price by adjusting their behavior, using different technologies, making investments. And then government largely steps back and then allows competition to determine where the reductions take place. 
And if you think about the words I used to describe that program, competition, government stepping back, letting the marketplace work, letting businesses find solutions, you can see in my mind quite easily why conservatives have gravitated towards this approach. Your playing field is politics and in D.C. What's that like? Did you know in law school that you were going to end up in D.C.? Is it I, I'm, I haven't lobbied. What's it like? What's I mean, who are the people you work with and, and what kind of things do you do? Well, it's a it's a unique job and industry that pretty much only exists in one place of, in the world. Um, and if you get outside of Washington and you try to explain what you do, you often get a lot of blank stares and confused looks. And I certainly understand why that is. But at the end of the day, what we do is we um, we work with members of Congress and other lawmakers to educate them on a lot of the things we've been talking about today. Um on, on the ways to solve this issue. Um, now, how that work unfolds is, is, is multifaceted. We work with a number of very large companies from industries across the economy. We work with environmental groups. We work with labor groups. We work with economists. And all of those entities certainly don't have the same views on everything. But what we've been able to do is among those very diverse industries and, and interest groups, uh, find points of common belief. And from there, we've partnered to amplify our message, to help members of Congress understand how the types of solutions, Josh, we've been talking about today are effective first and foremost at meaningfully reducing emissions, but also can be done in a way that is good for the United States economy, which members of Congress on both sides of the aisle care greatly about, is good for the American worker, can help uh, all of us in all parts of the country and ultimately all parts of the world uh, live a, a healthier and more prosperous life. And so we are a, a convening organization. Um, and, uh, and so that gives you hopefully a bit of a flavor of, uh, of how we work. Have you been there long enough to see much change in the views of legislators? And if so, is it change more from our individuals learning and changing and growing themselves? Or is it the changing of some people get voted out, new people get voted in? Or is there not that much change? What's it like there? Yeah, let me, let me take that from two, two angles. So first, let me step out of climate for a second. Um, because uh, by all accounts, the political discourse right now is, is quite toxic. The two sides seemingly are moving further and further apart. And the dysfunction... Uh, appears to be getting worse and worse. And there, that is the representation that we hear and read and see in most media outlets. And that is a real dynamic. I can report back that is a real dynamic, but less covered, I think, and less um, obvious to folks who don't work in Washington day in and day out. And from a more optimistic, viewpoint, there are still a lot of members on both sides of the aisle who take their jobs very seriously, who actually want to get things done. Now, we've got a lot of work to do, um, but it's interesting. I, I've, I recently just uh, finished doing a round of introductions with a, a number of freshman members of Congress, so, so members of Congress who were just elected for the first time uh, last November. And I've been really impressed by the thoughtfulness of many of the new members and, frankly, a bit surprised at just how constructive their posture has been coming to Washington. Because my perception, even though I, I work here day in and day out, is that 
the members that are increasingly coming to Congress are increasingly from sort of the, the far ends of, of both political parties. And, and there certainly are um, members that, that represent the left uh, and right flanks, but, but I hope it's not lost on, on your listeners, or I'm, I'm happy to report, I guess, is a way to say it, that there are some, some real problem solvers uh, in Congress. On, on, on climate, um, there's, been, there's been a huge shift. So I've been working on this issue for many years, and there's far less debate about whether climate change is happening or not, far less debate about whether it's caused by man or not. We are much further along in having meaningful conversations about the, the, the right solutions to the problem and also you know, where to prioritize it among other issues. We still have a lot of work to do, no question about it, to establishing the policies that will be needed to put this country, to put the world on a trajectory to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. Um, but the, the trend line uh, is positive. It may not be steep enough at this point, but it is moving in the right direction. Is it hard work? Is it fun work? Is it, is it grueling? Is it, I mean, for all I know, you're going out to drinks a lot, <laughs> but what's it like? The, uh, is this something that people would envy you doing or is it really drudgery? I could imagine any of these things. And, and it's all of those things that, you know, it depends on, it depends on the day, but, but we do this work because we believe in it. We believe in what we are trying to accomplish. We, um, we understand the magnitude of this challenge and it's motivating. It's motivating. The forum the arena can be extremely frustrating. It can be extremely frustrating. And what we are trying to do at, at my organization is build up a policy that would have a game-changing impact on addressing climate change, trying to build this policy up. And it's just an unfortunate fact of politics and, and maybe life that it's easier to um, to sort of destroy something or to break it down or to prevent it from being constructed than to construct. And so, um, you know, it's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, two steps back, sometimes two steps forward, three steps back. But the goal is is worth the effort. And As I look out at what is driving our momentum, I think about younger voters on both sides of the aisle who disproportionately care about climate change. I think about what I've seen here in Washington in terms of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle uh, willing to step into this space. So ultimately, I have a lot of optimism uh, there are days when, uh, when that drink at the end of the day, uh, <laughs> when you said the goal is worth the effort, what's the goal? I, I mean, I know that there's a goal of, of the legislation, but I presume that's a, strate a strategy or tactic to reach a goal of what's the goal. What, is there a future that you envision that this leads to? Yeah. Our goal is pretty simple. It's to, to through through government policy, um, reduce global emissions at the required scale and speed to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. Within that, we have a, a, an opinion that the most effective and underutilized tool in the toolbox of solutions are market-based policies. So policies that would put some form of a a price on carbon. And so that is our uh, immediate focus. Our immediate mission is to do our part to see the establishment of these market-based climate solutions. But the big picture goal is, is climate. 
Do you have a sense of where they would lead? I mean, I, I can understand if you would say, well, if I knew that, then we wouldn't need the market. But the, And the market will solve things in ways that we couldn't predict. And that's the genius of it distributes resources to the people who have the best solutions. But I'm curious if you have a vision of what society looks like after this, after emissions have dropped down to whatever levels are appropriate. I mean, do we have... Does it look just like today, but a little different, or is it very different? Have you do you have a sense of that, or is it just let the market figure it out and we we can't predict it? I'm not sure. I could see either of these or other things too. Well, I mean, we've done we've we've modeled our policy in a number of different ways. MIT has done a lot of work on the impacts of a climate change. In fact, they've modeled a number of different solutions and found a price on carbon to be the most effective. Uh, at reducing emissions. And so what does the future economy look like? Well, I think it sort of depends on which way the market decides to act, to your point. But we're operating in a society that is emitting far less or, or even eventually no carbon emissions. So I don't know what the mix of technologies will be or will certainly be big consumers of electricity. So it's likely that you'll see a continued, um, the continued deployment of wind and solar. Um, there are big breakthroughs taking place in the nuclear industry, which is, uh, you know, some, some folks are big supporters of it. I, I happen to believe in the, the potential of, of zero carbon um, uh, nuclear at, at hopefully falling costs, um, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, and then perhaps technologies and solutions in the electricity sector that we don't know about or that we only uh, sort of conceptually understand their impact. Um, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of smart people believe that the electrification of other parts of the economy is... Uh, going to be part of what the, the future looks like. So you get the electricity sector to reduce uh, its emissions or, or zero out its emissions. And then the electricity that you're consuming um, is, uh, is not having an emissions impact. So perhaps that looks like a, um, a, a, a country whose automobile fleet is, is mostly or entirely electric powered. Um, but um but the thing is, is to get to the emission reduction goals that we need, that scientists tell us are necessary, it's going to require technological breakthroughs in industries across the economy. And some of those solutions, we have a pretty good idea of what they will be, but it's also going to require inventing new solutions and new technologies. So, um, so we look forward to, to seeing what those are. Are you referring there to things like um, flying across oceans or um, container ships, trucks that go across the country, things like that? Because right now, my understanding is that electrification won't work there. Exactly. So right now, electric vehicles are um, constrained to some extent by their range, but a lot of incredible breakthroughs are taking place in the battery industry. The charging infrastructure is getting built up, but the part of what makes, in my mind, and makes my life easier in these conversations uh, about supporting a market-based solution is I don't need to know what the technologies are going to be. Uh, I have a lot of faith in innovators, in scientists, in, in, in frankly, in, in the market in the market and the power of the market to find solutions. I mean, just think back in history to how far we've come technologically in, in every part of our lives. And if we can just pour a little accelerant into the parts of the economy that's looking for zero carbon, low carbon climate solutions, I think we're going to find that just the way human nature is, the way that the markets operate, that new solutions are going to appear, that challenges with existing technologies are going to get resolved, 
And ultimately, we're going to make a lot more progress a lot faster uh, than perhaps it feels like we can sitting here today. I suppose it's also possible that the prices keep going up and some things just don't fit anymore. I mean, there's something like 90% of things that people buy end up in landfills within a year. And there's a store near me. It closed during the pandemic, but it, it sold like little Pikachu toys. And I think it was mainly like someone on the way home from work might buy something for their spouse and be like, here, I got something for you. And I don't think it really made the world any better. I mean, people were buying these things, but I think they were artificially cheap because of subsidies and things like that. And I think if my girlfriend came home and she were going to buy me a Pikachu thing, I'd much rather she just gave me a back rub, which doesn't pollute. And so I think there's a huge areas of the economy that would just, people wouldn't get those things anymore. I mean, there's a lot of plastic packaging. People buy bags and I, actually, yesterday I was at NYU and there was some event and someone, there's a pitcher of water. Someone got a plastic cup, got, drank maybe eight ounces of water and then threw the cup in the trash. This was, I mean, there's water fountains all over the building and the they could have used reusable glasses. And I, I suspect that there's huge areas of reduction. Like when I say reduction, I think everyone thinks deprivation and sacrifice. But some things I don't think are making our lives better. It, I, I would presume that the market is also going to shake out some things that really aren't helping, uh, that aren't really improving people's lives. Or I yeah, guess I would I, say that they, they'll we'll find other ways that don't pollute, that don't, or in this case, that don't use carbon, that satisfy the the need or the want without the carbon. I think that's I think that's generally correct. It it will um, appropriately embed in the cost of the good the environmental impacts, or I should say I should I should say part of the environmental impacts. And really, I'm talking about the climate. I mean, it's the it will embed in the cost of the good the climate impacts of making that good, which is not going to uh, necessarily. Uh, um, it won't, it won't, it won't limit choice for people, but it will um, correct what is really a market failure, which is um, there are environmental impacts, there are climate impacts to making all of the things you describe. And absent some form of a, a price, we are not appropriately uh, setting the costs, which should include the societal impacts um, of goods. And so I think there will be a change in consumer behavior. But I think it's also important to understand and to um, share with folks who might be a little bit more hesitant towards some of the things we're talking about to understand that this isn't about limiting choice. Uh, there will still be there. This is about the market correcting a failure, and the market will will continue to produce goods and services that 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 consumers want, but it will be informed by the climate impacts of those goods and services. And so that's a that's an important missing ingredient to our market as it exists today. And the result, I think, is that we end up with um, a lot of stuff we probably don't need that has a disproportionately high environmental impact, at least um, in relation to its value. Yeah, we know that the necessities of life can be, we the, none of them require emitting carbon dioxide or polluting because we have 300,000 years of history showing that. And a lot of that was thriving. And a lot of the big advances people think about of things like longevity is, is much more due to soap and hygiene and, and um, um, sewage, which don't require a lot of polluting. So the necessity of life, we don't have to worry, will they, will they still happen? I guess if it, if it becomes more, let's say, cars and roads 
become more and more expensive. I'm not sure. Batteries might make it cheaper, but it might be that people stop living in exurbs and start moving back into cities. I mean, we've seen flows from cities to suburbs post-war and then back into cities later. And it, it tastes might change and based on costs. And so people still have houses, people still have a roof over their head, but they might live in different places with different lifestyles. I, I think it's I think it's possible. I, I think I would also share that what we're talking about, the thing that that my organization's working on, it by itself isn't going to uh, drive that level of change. And but what I mean by that is this one policy isn't going to, I don't believe, result in folks moving from the suburbs to the cities. Um, there may be other factors. But part of what's important for, um, for I think, members of Congress to understand in, in the voting public is that most of the changes will not have a meaningful impact on their day-to-day -day lives. In fact, most of the impacts will be imperceivable to them. The biggest changes are going to take place at the really big emitting parts of the economy. So like the power plant level at the manufacturing factory. But when people are going to the store, they're still going to be able to buy milk and still going to be able to, uh, you know, provide their children with all the things their children need. But I think there will be some sort of imperceivable or, or less perceivable changes. Um, so you might see goods, on the shelves with less packaging. Well, I don't think consumers are going to care really if, uh, as long as they're able to get the goods they need, if their package was made while emitting less carbon. So I think for folks who are less steeped in these topics than, than you or me, there's actually some, um, some things about what we've been talking about that may sound concerning, like it's going to require tomorrow, um, a, a massive change in, in how they live their lives. Um, and I guess what I want to share is that it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to, um, or the changes anyway, I think folks will find um, aren't on the, on the things they care most about. Well, I guess we're also assuming that technologies can be invented. There's no guarantee that they can be invented. I mean, some things – I had a guy on the podcast who was the uh, chief engineer of a, an electric plane company. And he was saying it's nice to say that there could be big advances, but we're, a, lot of the, a lot of the technologies are very mature. And he wasn't he – he sees a lot of future for electric planes, but it's mostly not for flying humans. It's for flying stuff and not that far. So – yeah, so he, he wasn't saying that there's no future for electric flight, but it's not exactly where we would think it would be. I mean, it would be, it's going to be very valuable in emergency situations where roads are out and people can't get to places. Uh, but there's no guarantee that we can get – just because we want an invention in some place doesn't mean we'll get one. But that's what the market means, right? The market isn't magic. It, it, it says if there's – it will find other ways of getting the value of those things if not – the old thing itself. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, we don't need buggy whip manufacturers anymore. <laughs> right. It's just, it's, we may have a new way of moving ourselves around the planet. Who, who knows? Who knows? But I do have a lot of faith in, in the market continuing to evolve in new innovations taking place and new technologies and 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 other things um, being invented that solve problems that provide us what we need to live the lives we we want to live and uh, and the replacement is often better and preferable to the incumbent um, but we need to give the market some direction in terms of where it needs to head. Right now, in terms of from a climate standpoint, it's largely directionless. So it's going to focus on 
you know, where can the most profits be made? What, uh, what will consumers buy the most of? And that's always going to be a dynamic. But we want included in that the market to be pointed in a direction that is, it is ever more, uh, it is operating in a way that is, that is reducing uh, emissions uh, more and more or resulting in fewer and fewer emissions. And if we do that, if we do that, we will see the improvement of technologies in the clean energy space that we already know about, uh, but will also increase our odds of new technological breakthroughs and solutions taking place uh, where we don't necessarily have a great solution today. Now, you're talking a lot about climate and carbon. And I came to environmental issues through climate and carbon, although I've always known about plastic pollution and deforestation uh, and all sorts of things like that. The ozone hole was a big issue. And I also find this whack-a-mole or the squeeze the balloon at one end, it pops out at the other end. And that if substitution, if you try to work on one industry, then other industry, it just pops up in another industry. So if I... When I find people focusing on carbon and climate, I feel like guaranteed they're going to be – what they do, if they only focus on those things, they're going to result in, um, let's just say, batteries, cobalt, and the and – the, I'm sure you've seen the projections of how much rare earths and even um, copper that we would need and the pollution and the deforestation comes from that, that if we focus only on carbon and climate – I find that we push up the deforestation, we push up the desertification, we push up the plastic in the ocean, we push up all these other forms of pollution and deforestation and things and extinctions and things like that. So one could say, well, let's focus on carbon first and then let's get to the other things. That's the big one. Uh, some would argue that's not the big one, but you also said how this it's if you do one in one industry, you'll you can't just do it in one industry because other industries will will keep doing will will augment what you're stopping in the one place. So I I mean I always think of a pollution tax and I think of a tax on like I think of it more as like a accounting correcting the accounting. Uh, so what about including all pollution in there? I mean some of the pollution is just like it it kills people and carcinogens and things like that somehow make it through and they seem like a slam dunk to to include in there but some things like um lithium cobalt might also fit in there I, I presume you guys have talked about that within the climate well it's climate but the climate leadership council yeah well first important to recognize that climate change is a major global environmental challenge, but it is certainly not the only environmental challenge that we face as a, as a globe, as a country, as a species. Second, there is some, there will be some co-pollution benefits, and there already have been some co-pollution benefits to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. When we lower our, our greenhouse gas emissions, our carbon dioxide emissions, uh, when we deploy the technologies that do that, when we make the fuel switches that lower emissions, the, the trend tends to be reducing other pollutants, other air pollutants like um, SOx and NOx and PM 2.5, um, the kind that's not caused by forest fires, but the, the kind that comes from combusting fuels. Um, so I believe the trend or sort of the, the collateral impacts of lowering greenhouse gas emissions will be reducing pollution on net. I also agree with you, Josh, that inevitably solutions to environmental challenges will in part lead to additional challenges. And the hope is that the, the big problem you're solving 
if it is creating a secondary new issue, that the new issue is smaller and easier to tackle. And I happen to believe that that is the case with climate. I think as we, as a globe, reduce our emissions and as we deploy these new technologies, I do agree that new challenges will will come forward. We are, we're already seeing them. Um, and we need to address those too. Um, but I think uh, I think we're on the right track, focusing uh, on global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but we do need to, um, in parallel, be mindful of the the unintended environmental consequences of, of some of these solutions. Yeah, I, I have to say that my research shows that uh, I mean they're not new things. Plastic in the ocean is not new. Deforestation isn't new. Extinction's not new. And the trend seems to be more that the it's not like a small little unintended side effect. We, we like to think it is. But these things are accelerating and growing and, um, and deadly. So no, no, no question about it. No question about it. But the, the increase in plastic pollution... I do not believe is a result of us trying to address climate change. In fact, I think, if anything, the more serious we get about addressing climate change, the fewer or the less unnecessary plastic will be produced because of the market dynamics that we've been talking about. If we're serious about addressing climate change, we have to think about land use. We have to think about deforestation. And so if we're if we have engaged the world in tackling this issue, the net impact should be less deforestation. Um, so I, I don't think those environmental trends, which I agree with you, are headed in the wrong direction, are headed in that direction because of climate action. In fact, I think climate action will support them, but climate action alone won't solve those problems, and they need to be addressed. Um, separately or in addition to. Also, there's when I look at the um, conservative case for carbon dividends, which I rec- I'll put a link to in the notes, uh, I presume that the, you want, that's something you want listeners to read. And so there's a gradually increasing carbon tax. Carbon dividends for all Americans, which I, we didn't give enough time to, but um, is a big piece of it, right? It's not just a tax. It's, it's returning to – maybe you, can you describe that better than I can? Yeah, absolutely. Because who doesn't want a dividend? <laughs> That's right. So, so the the our carbon dividends program puts a, a carbon fee on fossil fuels when they enter the economy, and the the impact is that there's a price signal sent through all activities in the economy, all goods in the economy that um, that relied on that energy to be produced. And so carbon intensive activities, things that required a lot of carbon emissions um, become more expensive and things with fewer carbon emissions are more cost competitive. But there is an impact to consumers. In fact, that's in part what the objective of the program is, which is to send that price signal to everybody in every part of the economy so that they are able to uh, be informed about their uh, purchasing decisions and ultimately be incentivized to move towards uh, goods and economic activity that result in fewer carbon emissions. But what we don't want is we don't want to ask um, households and particularly middle and income, uh, middle and low income families to shoulder the burden of this, of this low carbon transition. Um, and so what we would propose to do with this pot of revenue that's generated from the carbon fee is simply return it back to the American public in the form of a lump sum rebate. Now, this isn't a free lunch, right? We've all been enlisted in this program. We're all participating. We're all doing our part uh, as a result of of, of a carbon price being in place. Um, And so we're simply saying, instead of returning it to the government and having them determine how that revenue is spent, we return it back to the American public and let them decide um, what to do with this revenue that's been generated as a result of the carbon fee. And the net impacts 
end up being uh, beneficial for most middle and low income families, meaning that at the end of the year, the amount of dividend they would receive, and just to give you a sense, Josh, it would be about $2,000 for a family of four, would be more than the increased cost they would realize over the course of the year um, as a result of the carbon fee. So one of the results is you're not growing the government. The government is staying revenue neutral, I, I presume. Exactly. The last piece is significant regulatory simplification, which could mean, I mean, some people are going to look at that and think, oh, there's a Trojan horse there. I mean, uh, can you describe that one more? Well, as we've talked about, the carbon price is by most experts' opinion, the, econ the economics community is convinced the most effective way to lower carbon emissions. And part of the reason for that is that it tells businesses and power plants and the really large parts of the economy that have high emissions that there's going to be this cost and here's what the cost is going to be and here's what the cost is this year and here's what the cost is in five years and in 10 years and 15 years and that knowledge that certainty will undoubtedly inform and impact their investment decisions for the types of facilities and the types of power plants they're going to build. And we believe with that in place, it justifies reducing some of the uncertainty in the marketplace, which is uh, regulations that would be designed to uh, achieve the same emission reductions. Now, one really important point is that the price has to be in place under our program for the regulations to be streamlined uh, or and, and said differently uh, or in addition, the regulations that we would envision uh, being traded in effect would only be those that impact the same carbon emissions that the price is, uh, that the carbon fee is impacting. Um, and so from an environmental standpoint, it's an unquestioned winner. Uh, there's, and we've done, we've done a lot of analysis and modeling to show that the emission reductions would be substantially greater. But there's a, another dynamic here, which is that we haven't successfully yet put in federal carbon regulations, at least the kinds that we would be talking about streamlining. What has happened in practice is that one administration comes in, typically a Democratic administration, and adopts regulations like we saw during the Obama administration. And then a Republican administration comes in and repeals those. And so the net result is, is a null set. We don't get any reductions from the regulations, but we get a lot of uncertainty. And so from an environmental standpoint, as an organization that's focused singularly on addressing climate, this is a trade that I would make uh, very easily. Well, I wish I had more time to, to talk to you because I think we're running out of time here. But the, I wanted to make sure to cover what the, the foundation of what the Climate Leadership Council is working on and why so many people are so favorable to it. I push back a little bit and I, I hope to continue the conversation. Um, is there anything I didn't think to ask before wrapping up? to cover or any last words you want to give to the listeners? Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground. It's been really fun talking with you, Josh. I really um, am impressed and respect what you've uh, taken on as an individual and this platform that you've provided. We talked a little bit about um, the political discourse and, uh, and I mentioned how there's, understandably some concern about where we might be headed as a country, where we might be headed in terms of um, yeah, our political discourse. And I and often, and I think rightly so, um, a target or sort of a, a, a reason for that is the way that we consume media and this sort of need to be able to make your point in a soundbite or in a 
140 character tweet. And I happen to believe that the antidote to that is, uh, is long form discussions like this and the long form platform that you've created through this podcast. So I guess I just want to say thanks for what you do and thanks for uh, letting me be a, a part of it for an hour. Oh, you're making me blush. <laughs> well, yeah, Greg Bertelsman, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.